Welcome to Renegade Inc. Over the last few years, the subject of money has come into sharp focus. Increasingly, we want to know who creates it, who issues it, who controls it, and importantly, who decides who gets it first. Today's paradox is why, with so much money now created, do we still have so much inequality and poverty? And should this contradiction lead us to ask, how much do we really know about the dynamics of money? Brett, welcome to Renegade Inc. Great to be here, Russ. Uh, you say that big financiers uh, know how to work with money, but they don't really know how money actually works. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, I mean, maybe the metaphor I'd use is like an artist. So an artist might be able to paint with paint very beautifully, but not actually understand how the paint itself is created. So actually many um, parts of finance involve doing sort of complex operations with money, but that doesn't actually require an understanding of the monetary system. So for example, I used to work in exotic derivatives. There was no requirement for me to understand the monetary system to work in derivatives. Somebody else who um, ostensibly knows how money works is a man called Jerome Powell, Jay Powell uh, to you and me. Uh, here's a clip of him, let's have a look. Fair to say you simply flooded the system with money. Yes, we did. That's another way to think about it. We did. Where does it come from? Do you just print it? We print it digitally. So we, you know, we, as a central bank, we have the ability to create money uh, digitally. And we do that by buying treasury bills or, or bonds or other government guaranteed securities. And that, that actually increases the money supply. We also print actual currency and we distribute that through the Federal Reserve banks. So 10 years ago, uh, we put a film together maybe a bit longer and we were telling people that banks create money, not only central banks, private banks, commercial banks too. Uh, and a lot of people at that time were so sort of taken aback by that because um, they didn't think there was a magic money tree. Uh, jump forward a decade or a little longer and suddenly this is becoming common knowledge. What does that mean to man and woman on the street? What does it mean that we now understand that mechanism? Well, I think actually it's questionable whether people do understand it in its entirety. So it's one thing to learn that there are money issuers in society. So that's the sort of the first phase. People are learning that there is you know, these different the, the central banks and banks can create money. But it's a sort of a secondary thing to then try to actually understand that from the perspective of those issuers. What many people try to do is they try to understand that from the perspective of somebody who is a user of the monetary system. And actually lots of the moral horror that comes around when people hear stuff about, oh, you know, banks create money or the state creates money. A lot of the, a lot of the moral horror comes from the feeling that they, they've never experienced what it's like to actually do that. Because you spend your entire life basically as a person who's on the receiving end of the monetary system using money issued by others. By flooding the economy with money, uh, you can argue that a central bank destroys price discovery, which ultimately affects the consumer, uh, affects people, everybody, in fact, who uses money. What's your view on that? Well, I mean, the thing about monetary systems is you've got to be the main way, sort of the, the main orientation to start off with, the way, the way that I would start off with is to see them as network structures. So. You're going to be, and most people are not trained to do this, right? So you, you're, you're kind of like, the way that you experience, I think of you, you're born as a baby, right? And, you, and the way that you initially experience money is these objects that you just sort of see moving around. 
All right, and that's the sort of the surface level of the monetary system, and most people sort of stay there, right? But to try and understand these dynamics, you've got to see, zoom out and see a whole like network structure. So imagine a kind of mesh that's like tied together, or kind of like a mesh structure, all right? And then from there, you can start to make, make the things about, you know, what would happen, for example, if uh, a, a very large player in that mesh started pushing out more of those units, what would happen? For example, it could disrupt the pricing system. And absolutely, a lot of the debates around monetary policy and the sort of politics of money are about who gets to issue those units and who it actually affects. And there's a lot of like complexity you can go into around what's going on there. Do you make a difference between credit and money? Uh, well, it depends. There's different layers of credit in a system. So when you when you talk to a person and you and you ask them, you know, what do you what do you think about what do you what do you think about when you hear the term credit? What they're often imagining is monetary debt, all right? So they're imagining, for example, I borrowed uh, X amount of money and I have to pay back X amount of money. But in the, the first form of debt, as it were, if you're looking at like a monetary system, is actually credit that's demarcated in goods and services, all right? So this is, this is where you get into the, sort of the dark arts of money. Like the, 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 when people say things like money is created out of debt or money is debt, or, um, what they're saying actually is that Money is a claim upon real goods and services, okay? Uh, this is quite a complex topic, but there's sort of these different layers of debt in a system. So the, so the bottom layer is actually like these, these contracts that are locked into real goods and services. And then you can build new layers of debt on top of that. So when I was working in the derivative markets, if you're looking at derivative markets, they're often sitting, I'd probably place them about like layer eight of the financial system. All right, and they built on all these more these simpler layers, and the, your your deepest layer, if you're looking at it, is actually the global ecology. It's like it's like trees and and farmland and and people working in those, and then the, the monetary system is locked into that, and then you can build more complex in instruments on top of that. And derivatives are these like very high level abstract things built in the very top layers. So yes, I, I don't make a distinction between. Uh, I mean, monetary systems are credit systems, but that doesn't necessarily mean what people think it means. When you're looking at these, these multi-layered structures, which is what finance is, it's all these multi-layered uh, sort of contractual structures. The higher up you go, the more abstract and large scale they become. So if you're looking at a large scale derivative, it's often plugged into lots of underlying systems below it, right? So if you have a whole layer of bets on a layer of credit, which is what let's say credit derivatives are, and then those bets, something goes wrong in the bets, it can have huge disruptive influences down the chain. Okay. So like when I'm when I'm building up those models, what I'm trying to do is to show the sort of the, the simplest elements of a system to the most complex. Right? And the most complex elements are built on the simpler ones, but then they can feed back on each other. So when you're looking at the analysis of the financial crisis, you have these very abstract financial instruments, um, which those going down brings down all the layers below it. All I heard was dominoes. Yeah, I would, I would sort of tend to think like one of the problems people have when they're thinking about finance is they sometimes think it's disconnected from the underlying, underlying things in the world. You know, they see like high finance, and they're like, oh, it's not related to my everyday life. All financial instruments in the final analysis are connected back into actual things happening on the ground. But the problem is, 
the sort of the more the further away you get from those things the more out of kilter they can become you can easily like intuitively understand this if you hang out in a small scale hunter gatherer society for example yeah there's there's a there's a there's a, a kind of like a, a limit to the delusion that you can find in a very small scale economic situation right, right? right. they're not going to like believe things which will which will lead to their demise very easily whereas if you're in a, a super large scale system with very abstract financial instruments those can go out of kilter for 10 years before the system kind of like pulls them back into reality. So with the financial crisis, that's what's going on. You've got these extremely large scale instruments tied into millions of underlying things. And it can go for a decade before it actually uh, people realize that it's out of, out of kilter. Um, and that's what the big problems are often about. One of the things that we often hear uh, and see bandied around social media is how Bitcoin uh, and other so-called cryptocurrencies are going to supplant, no less, the uh, global financial system. Uh, they are renegade-type uh, instruments that are going to uh, you know, usurp uh, the masters of the universe. How likely do you think that that is? Uh, very unlikely, I'd say. I mean, I do a lot of analysis of Bitcoin. I've actually I've been involved in Bitcoin since about 2011, so I've had quite a lot of experience with the dynamics of Bitcoin and what it is, what it isn't. And the structure of Bitcoin is... Interesting. Basically, it's a system for issuing out tokens and moving them around without a central party. I mean, that's basically what the system is. Um, but those tokens are not monetary tokens. They're just tokens that can be bought and sold. So the interesting element of Bitcoin is the underlying infrastructure, right? So it's the decentralized infrastructure. It's the fact that a whole group of strangers can get together and coordinate action between themselves without there being some central party. Now that's politically fascinating for many people across the political spectrum. Actually, you find people on the left and the right who find that property of that system extremely interesting. What's a lot less interesting in Bitcoin is the type of so-called monetary system that they will then use to try, well, they will then implement on that. And the actual, what's actually happening in Bitcoin is a, um, the best way to describe it is they've, used that system to issue out blank objects that can be moved between people. So think about them as being kind of like digital collectibles, but then they've carved monetary branding into them. Okay, so they money branded digital collectibles that you can move around. Um, and in reality, they are just another object in the monetary system. So much like this uh, bottle of water can be bought and sold, uh, Bitcoin Bitcoin tokens are objects that can be bought and sold. The key difference is they are branded with monetary imagery. The other thing that we hear about money uh, is the um, incessant threat of a cashless society, the war on cash. How much uh, water does this argument hold? Bearing in mind that when we think of it in a Western context, yes, the Netherlands and Sweden are, uh, have pushed hard down this road to be cashless. But when we look at it at a global level, there are 86% of people in the world who still use cash, uh, whereas 14% in the developed world aren't. Is it the case that, again, from a scale point of view, the idea of a cashless society globally for control or whatever it might be is, um, well, conspiratorial? I mean, I use the term the war on cash precisely because the traditional narrative around so-called cashless society is that it's a bottom-up process. This is organically happening, um, that ordinary people around the world are just sort of um, opting to, to leave the cash system. Whereas when you start to look at it, you start to see a lot of institutional 
um, you know, companies, banks, payment industry, governments who have overtly had a top-down push against the cash system, and it's been going on for a very long time. Um, in the UK, for example, it's, it's very, very explicit how it works. And that, hypothetically, as the war on cash goes on, it leads to this thing called cashless society, which basically refers to a society where you have to use the banking system for all economic interactions, or basically all, all payments. And if you want to zoom out and, and put it into political terms, what it basically means is that the state money system, which is the system you know, under the central bank, uh, loses power relative to the bank money system, which is the system where our banks are issuing out money. Okay, so it's a, it's a relative shift of power from the state part of the monetary system to the banking part of the monetary system, because there's these two layers of money in a society. There's the sort of the, the state money, um, and then there's these bank uh, chips, which are issued out, which is all that stuff you see in your bank account. Okay, so the, 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 the politics of this issue is, do you want to maintain the state money system, or do you want to cede control to the banking sector in entirety? Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can say about that, but the banking sector is definitely winning right now, but it's creating a whole bunch of imbalances in the system. So it is definitely true, especially since the pandemic has, 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 has accelerated this a lot, that a lot of people are falling into the arms of the banking sector in the sense that they are all opting into this kind of uh, the digital payment structures, which are run by the banks. Um, but a lot of states are now realizing the problems that come from that. The, the, term, the, the question of whether there will be a future cashless society is, is partly going to be decided by whether central bankers and authorities will act to protect the state money system or not. Right, in that first half, it's quite technical insofar as we're getting your views on you know, how the, this system works, how this monetary system works. I uh, just want to ask you a couple of personal questions because I know that you were uh, running a hippie lodge, as you called it, uh, and then you arrived in, in your homeland in South Africa. You arrived in gleaming, shiny London, wanting to get under the skin of the derivatives market um, and uh, infiltrate the financial sector, as you put it. Why did you want to do that? Well, I, I, I wasn't running the Hippie Lodge. I was, I was, work, I was working at the, at, the, at the Hippie Lodge. But um, yeah, I mean, in, in basic terms, I come from an alternative kind of uh, left-wing kind of background, right? So it's, it, it's quite different to what you might imagine the mainstream of finance. But at the same time, I was very politically engaged and involved in various types of whatever you want to call it like economic justice type of campaigns but i realized that there's actually that there's a huge sort of structural limit to your ability to act unless you actually have some kind of um intuitive feeling for how these structures work all right a lot of activists have like a kind of moral horror when approaching finance and actually they, don't, they often don't even approach it they'll sort of like uh, kind of throw stones at it from the outside, but often have these straw man accounts of what's happening. But if, you, if you're interested in actually reforming structures, it doesn't help very much necessarily to only have that type of uh, experience. So I was very interested in my, the adventurous part of me was very interested in like, what is it like to actually immerse yourself in these structures and start to understand them in a, in a deeper way. So that's what all my sort of work in the financial sector was about, was sort of throwing myself into 
what would seemingly be something very counterintuitive. I mean, I actually find it extremely fascinating. It was extremely useful to me to do it. And it's partially what's enabled me to then work with lots of activist groups after that and to try and um, bring a more human side to teaching about finance and money and these kind of things. So that's, that's where I've come from in this, in this journey. Is the financial sector in the UK post Big Bang, is it a cost center or is it a value add? Well, I mean, to the overall economy, probably a cost center, but to the people within the system, I mean, fine, you, you extract quite a lot. Many people have done this type of analysis, uh, like Nick Shackson, for example, did, this, did that book on this, uh, uh, The Finance Curse, I think it was called, which is all about actually on net, the UK ends up losing due to the financial sector, because there's lots of, for example, talent that's drained into that sector that could be doing a lot more useful stuff rather than, you know, designing some algorithm to, you know, or whatever, some system to price a credit derivative. You could actually be using that engineering degree for something a lot more useful that could actually have some future potential. But there's large amounts of sunk, sunk effort that doesn't really effectively produce much, although it does on a GDP sheet look kind of impressive. Up to a certain point, finance helps. Beyond that point, it starts to turn negative. And um, Britain passed that point a long time ago. So the bigger your financial sector, the more growth you have now in the financial sector in general terms, the lower your economic growth will be and all these other harms that will happen. So if you're asking, if you're calling for a more competitive financial sector, you're calling for a bigger city of London. And it doesn't take a genius to see that that is going to damage the economy. It's going to be more finance, lower growth. There was a study done by Gerald Epstein, who's one of the best known US finance professors and a couple of others, which tried to estimate the damage that has been caused to Britain by an oversized financial sector. And they used all the standard research from the IMF and others to build this kind of model. And they estimated that oversized finance beyond, you know, because finance had grown beyond its optimal size and, um, you know, its traditional useful roles um, had cost Britain four and a half trillion over from 95 to 2015. If you were to divide that by the British population, that's 170,000 pounds per household in terms of lost economic output. Now, that's a, it's absolutely a massive number, but this is, this is the closest estimate I think we have to how much oversized finance, and I stress oversized, um, has damaged Britain. We hear at the moment uh, that innovation is everything and the next word uh, that comes up is fintech and the word that immediately follows fintech is ecosystem. So these fintech companies have started, they want an ecosystem, they're going to innovate and they're going to disrupt the incumbents. It's uh, the jargon that you hear all the time. How can fintech, and maybe this is similar to Bitcoin in a way, how can fintech disrupt the incumbents if it's predicated on the system that the incumbents already use? It doesn't disrupt the system. I mean, the best way to think about this uh, as a metaphor is imagine the Apple iOS ecosystem. So that's the, on, your, on, a mobile, on the Apple phone, there'll be all these apps that you can get on the App Store, all right? And those apps all run on the same underlying uh, operating system, okay? And the app developers depend on that. Very similarly, the fintech ecosystem is predicated upon the underlying uh, operating system of finance, as it were, which is run by the banking sector. Um, and many of them plug in, all right? So actually, the question you want to ask yourself, for example, is does a, you know, let's say, choose an app on an iPhone, like a gym, a gym training app. Does a gym training app disrupt the iOS 
system of Apple. No, it doesn't. It actually strengthens it. So many fintechs are similar. They actually are plugging into the underlying banking sector and are place pasting new layers on top of it and doing interesting little things. But on net, the banking sector doesn't lose power. Uh, what can happen, though, is that by pasting a layer between us and the banking sector, fintechs can sort of change the user experience feeling of it. And they might sort of psychologically alter the dynamics a bit. But that's, that's, that's a different thing to bypassing and disrupting the banking sector. We come back to issuance, don't we, of fiat currency. We come back to who issues money. Because uh, you, I'm sure if you're talking to activist groups, will say that uh, there is an inherent inequality uh, that uh, arises, I'd argue, a structural inequality when it comes to who gets the money first, who gets money last, uh, and the purchasing power of that money. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, look, if, you, if you're analysing the fintech, big tech kind of thing, that is the realm of bank-issued money. Yeah. I mean, the entire digital money ecosystem is built upon these chips that banks issue out. I, I use the term chips. I mean, in you know, money jargon, they'll call it something else, you know, like bank deposits or like M1, these type of things. But basically what it's referring to is promises issued out by the banking sector that you see in your account, right? And they are able to issue out those promises far in excess of the actual state money they hold. And that's what's sometimes referred to as fractional reserve banking or however you want to call it. But the basic point is that the banks issue out a secondary layer of chips that's far bigger than the state money system. All right? And that is where all the companies like Square and Google and Uber with its you know, money app, that's what they're using. Okay? So the, the shift towards automated finance and fintech and all this kind of stuff is empowering that system. Now, if you're looking at other movements, for example, like MMT and these types of things, they're targeting about the sort of state money system. And my work on the war on cash is about can you protect the physical form of state money against this banking form um, of digital money? And I mean, this doesn't resolve all the politics of money. You still have to have a lot of other stuff going on. But the rise of the bank money system under the guise of technological innovation is often not picked up by many sort of monetary campaigners. They often don't really see that. If we agree, and I think thematically we do, that um, whoever issues money or credit ultimately drives inequality uh, in, within a society, um, when you speak to activists about this, what advice do you give them to say, look, if you want to address inequality or poverty, these are the areas that you should be looking at. And sorry if this sounds a bit complex, so this is a quite a complex issue, but, but if you go back to that sort of network imagery like of, of meshes, so if you're trying to see these systems and, you, and you're looking at interventions into a system, you can, you can start to think about where the interventions would, would be empower corporations versus empowering ordinary people. All right, so for example, Things like people's QE and these types of proposals are about saying, hey, you know, you can create new money, but make sure the recipients are ordinary people. Don't create it in the form of just pumping reserves into the banking sector or doing bailouts for big corporations. So you can easily see, for example, what's happening when these sort of uh, in, in, these interventions are happening. So like a conservative government's thinking to itself, I don't want the banking sector to go down. Uh, protect the landlords because that'll protect the mortgages to protect the banks. You know, these kind of things. They're, or like protect the big corporations because they're big nodes in the system. So we don't want them to go down. So hit them first and, and, and save them first. Um, and the, often the, the people who are very last in these types of things are the, the, the average person on the ground. So the stuff like where you're looking at giving, you know, stimulus to actual 
individuals, that's, that's often sort of the last point of call for sort of your, your average conservative government. And so if you're thinking about like, hey, I want to do a more progressive type of interventions, you could, you could say, okay, let's hit that part first. All right. Stop protecting the banking sector and this kind of this kind of stuff. Not many people are saying, look, we should stop shoring up the monopolies, the monopoly to create and issue money. Land monopoly is another one. I'd argue that they go hand in glove. How uh, important is it to address the monopoly of issuance of money itself? Well, I mean, I've worked a lot on sort of alternative currency systems. So uh, people who work in alternative currencies tend to implicitly be doing this to say, OK, well, we have an existing monetary structure and there's these different issues within that structure who have power. Right. There's like the state and then there's the banking sector. And they're all part of this whole overall issuance system. OK, and there's a bunch of battles that are occurring in that system. All right. And then there are people who are saying, well, look, what we can do is try to rather than try to fix that, we're going to build systems around that. So if you're looking at your local currency movements, you look at, you know, mutual credit systems, there's a whole bunch of different styles of alternative currency who are trying to decentralize the issuance of currency. And when I use that term decentralize, I mean it in a different way to how cryptocurrency people will talk about it. So in the cryptocurrency world, the meaning of decentralization is create one very large infrastructure that nobody controls. Whereas a lot of the traditional alternative economy movements are saying, break down one very large infrastructure into smaller pieces that are controlled locally. Okay, that's the original meaning of decentralization. So lots of these types of local banking movements, um, local currency movements, these types of regional networks are all about that. So that's one approach. But in terms of like actual policy approaches, you know, putting limits on the banking sector, saying, okay, if you're going to create money, you've got to um, push it into actual productive parts of the economy, not just speculation, that kind of thing. Um, so it depends on where you're looking at in the system to what intervention you're going to do. Finally, if we continue uh, as we have been doing, uh, which is creating money and using it for speculative use, uh, making money out of money. What does society look like 5, 10, 15 years from now? Well, there's one dominant trajectory, which is that there's increasing centralization of power in the finance tech complex. The sort of like meta trend is towards massive uh, platform corporations like Amazon becoming colossally powerful and having alliances with the banking sector. Okay, That, of course, goes directly against things like trying to have regional banking systems that are trying to help local regions rather than a distant mega corporation. Okay. Um, so that's the overarching trend is towards this ever more automated, ever more centralized systems, which are actually um, go beyond the individual states that are part of the monetary system. It actually starts to become a sort of global structure. Okay. A lot of these sort of alternative movements are trying to pull against that. So if we don't want to go down to this future, which is about gigantic oligopolies of mega corporations in alliance with each other across states, you're going to have to try and build these counter movements. Things like the crypto world or the blockchain world is one type of alternative intervention that's sort of trying to build an alternative structure, albeit often failing. Um, but there is some potentiality in that world to create some more horizontal types of structures. Brett Scott, I, I know you're working on a book at the moment, Cloud Money, Cash, Crypto and the War for Our Wallets. Um, when it's out, please come back on. Thank you very much for your time. It's fascinating. Great. Thanks so much, Ross. It's been great.